Uh, Dr. David Kranz Memorial Lecture. December 14, 2008. Oh my God. Oh my God. All this NBC, CBS, CNN. Shoot at me. He needs room. He needs room. That's what this is. Yeah. Right. Okay. 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 Uh, or like just right over here. Uncle David, Dr. David Kranzler, Dr. Uh because he was such a strong and vibrant presence in all of our lives that he seems to still be with us. Uh, he was the glue that held the Kranzler and the Bine and all of our families together, despite being the youngest of the seven Kranzler siblings. And that was because of his intense and passionate care and concern for each and every one of us. I want to share with you a few personal memories that cannot even begin to capture the complex and wonderfully giving life of Uncle David. I was the youngest of the gang of three oldest male cousins, Gershi, Fizzy, and I, and we were privileged to spend a lot of time with him. He was like an older brother to all of us, forever taking us, or I should say, schlepping us. Along with him on his trips of self-discovery, adventure, and imagination, he took us on bicycle trips from Borough Park to Far Rockaway. He gathered all the kids who were visiting Sadie in Aunt Molly and Uncle Court's home for wonderful, historically-based stories in the dark bedroom 
that we could not get enough of and never wanted them to end. He taught me to love books. He took me with him on his escapades on 3rd Avenue below 14th Street to all of the used bookstores and that's where I think I developed my allergy to dust <laughs> because it couldn't have come from my own home um, or maybe it was my allergy to books I'm not sure but it was just this truly wonderful uh, adventure that Uncle David used to take us on um, and we loved going with him when he set up the library at Breuer's he enlisted me to help it was like the story um, from Tom Sawyer uh, I was supposed to be working and I didn't feel as if I was working it was an adventure since he was always teaching me he was always telling me something interesting he taught me how to lane for my bar mitzvah in his precise and meticulous way he taught me Sadie's Nusrach for the Dominic Rashtan and Yom Kippur before my first job as a Baal in Denora, Pennsylvania the home of San Usual um, Uncle David was a true artist he had a certain sense of harmony and balance as a child I remember his drawing of the Chazon Ish which hung in the living room on 49th Street I was in awe of his artistic ability and especially his beautiful calligraphy and some of us were fortunate to have been given as a wedding present the tuba which he personally made with his unique style and artistry mine is a prized possession not only because of the art but because it came from him his sense of harmony and balance was also manifest in his passionate feelings about right and wrong he cared deeply enough to tell me directly when he thought I was wrong and he told all of us when he thought we were wrong and we accepted it because it came from Uncle David he was fascinating to listen to about Jewish history or for that matter any subject because his heart and soul was completely immersed in what he was thinking about all I had to do was ask him what he was working on and then I could sit back and listen for hours he was always regaling me with stories and giving me articles and books about his various interests and his even way back the seminal work on the Jewish refugee community in Shanghai and his research in defense of the Orthodox rescue efforts during the Holocaust about which he was passionate in his pursuit of truth Uncle David was an artist of life he taught us how to have total faith and optimism even in the face of difficulties as he showed us in his terminal illness I have this incredibly powerful memory of the Motsoy Shabbos where we got together and it was a few weeks before he died and all the cousins gathered to sing together and to sing the nigunim of our childhood it was our way of saying goodbye it was our way of saying thank you but he taught us how to say goodbye and he is still teaching us Uncle David was a Rav Chesed de Emes he had a balance an abundance of Chesed of kindness and Emes 
and true. But he was also our Rav in Chesed Be'enna. Um, and Judy just told me this week uh, uh, this incredible story about uh, a letter she received from Joe Stern from Newton. How, um, I don't know who Joe Stern is, but his father came from Israel and um, stayed in, over the house. And Uncle David not only went to pick him up at the subway, but taught him calligraphy because he needed to have a, a, a way to earn a living. And he made uh, Joe Stern's father felt like he was special. Not that Uncle David was doing anything, but rather the other person was special. I tried to find the pasuk which captured the essence of Uncle David. And uh, what did I do? I, uh, I went to the concordance, which he taught me how to use, and gave me probably my first one. And the pasuk I came up with was from Mishlei, Gimel, pasuk Gimel. Keser de emes al ya azluka, kashrein al garzurosecha, kashrein al luach lidecha. Let fidelity and steadfastness not leave you. Bind them about your throat. Write them on the tablet of your mind. Uncle David used his words, his art, his incisive mind to teach us all, personally and private, through his care for each one of us, and publicly through his scholarship, his lecturing, and his fierce advocacy for what he thought was the truth. That's what we remember and that's what we're thankful for on this first anniversary of his passing. I know that Uncle David admired the scholarship and the masterful artistry of expression of Dr. Michael Schmidman. And so it's an honor to present Dr. Michael Schmidman to give the first memorial lecture in memory of Dr. David Transberg. Dr. Schmidman doesn't need any introduction here uh, and uh, even though it may embarrass him, I'm going to give an introduction nevertheless. Um, he's the Dean and Selmanowitz Professor of Jewish History at Tura Graduate School of Jewish Studies. Received his MA from Hebrew University and his PhD from Harvard. And he was also the rabbi at the Harvard Hillel. Prior to his appointment in 1981 as the first director of Turo's Graduate School of Jewish Studies, he taught at the University of Cincinnati and Yeshiva University. He has published and lectured extensively in the areas of medieval Jewish history and Maimonidean studies. He's the co-author of a two-volume Hebrew textbook on law and philosophy and Maimonides' teachings, and most recently has edited a two-volume textbook entitled Turim, Studies in Jewish History and Literature presented to Dr. Bernard Blander, in which an essay by Dr. David Kranzler, Uncle David, was uh, in the first volume entitled Orthodox Rabbis Confront the War Refugee Board. It was, a, it was an article that I had heard so much about just talking to Uncle David before, because he would always let us know what he was working on, and it was published in uh, this book. Uh, Rabbi Shemin has also served as Associate Director of Grisha Institute, Founding Director of the Grisha Fellowship Program, Rabbi of Congregation, and Editor of Tradition. And it's a pleasure to introduce um, Rabbi Dr. Michael Schmidman to speak about 1492 to 1942, Rethinking Jewish History. <coughs> 
Uh, thank you, Hayek, for those gracious words of introduction, uh, lengthy words of introduction. Um, uh, it is a personal honor and privilege to be asked to lecture in memory of a first-rate scholar and first-class human being, Dr. David Kranzler, the Cornell Graham. I have presented lectures in this very shul over a period of many years, and both Dr. Kranzler and Tibadul Achayim Tovim Baruch and his wife Judy made a point of attending a good number of them. And after each such lecture, Dr. Kranzler invariably would offer characteristically gracious, appreciative, and thoughtful comments. And that graciousness, that generosity of spirit, was a salient characteristic of it. I hope to comment briefly later on other features of Dr. Kranzler's character and work, but for the moment I simply wish to note that for me personally, his presence will be sorely, deeply missed this evening. Most, if not all, of the lectures that David Kranzler heard from me focused on my Mandian topics. That's my primary area of research, and my first inclination was to proceed in that direction again this evening for Baruch Hashem. Given the Rambam's comprehensiveness and centrality, there is no limit to potential Maimonidean topics. Uh, then it occurred to me that a different type of historical exploration might be more appropriate tonight and might serve to underscore and to highlight Dr. Kranzler's own historical concerns and scholarly methodology. And therefore, I invite you to join me in some historical detective work as we investigate the topic 1492 and 1942, Rethinking Jewish History. Our investigation begins in the year 1492, or more precisely on January 2nd, 1492. On that day, Granada, the last stronghold of Muslim rule in Spain, officially fell to Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, and the Spanish standard was raised above the Alhambra Palace in Granada. The Muslims had first arrived in Spain in the year 711, conquering large portions of the country, and for nearly 800 years, the Reconquista, the Reconquest, in which Christian rulers of Spain attempted to reclaim all of Spain from Muslim control, that Reconquest continued on and off, with most of the kingdom reclaimed by the middle of the 13th century, and the final Muslim enclave, Granada, now defeated in January of 1492. Jews reportedly joined in the celebration of the conquest of Granada. Indeed, throughout the medieval period, Jews of, of Europe were keenly aware of the fact that their best hope for security and stability rested with a strong central authority. The stronger the better. And as Professor Yosef Yerushalmi has argued, Jews, quote, were that one group in Spain that worked hard and sold for the aggrandizement of the king and the increase of his power, unquote. Some chroniclers even claim that high-ranking Jews were significantly involved in facilitating the marriage between Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile in 1469, leading to the unification of those two Iberian kingdoms. After all, centralization of power was naturally viewed by Jews as beneficial to Jewish security. In Spain of 1492, however, centralization of power was now directed toward total religious unification of the kingdom 
into one monolithically Catholic kingdom. There was no room any longer for toleration of Jews and Judaism. By March 31st, 1492, the Edict of Expulsion was signed in Granada, and by May, the exodus of openly professing Jews began. Only conversos, that is the many Jews who had converted, at least on the surface, during the intensely pressured period of 1391 to 1492, only conversos remained in Spain from the original Jewish population of the country. The openly professing Jews were now ordered to leave. And you have on the sheet that was handed out to you, I hope you all have copies, there are more. Um, there is a copy of the last page of the Edict of Expulsion with the signatures of Ferdinand and Isabel. I know it's too small to read, but you have it in front of you. While estimates of the number of Jews who were expelled vary considerably and continue to vary in recent research, the consensus of historians is that approximately 200,000 Jews left in 1492, with the majority, approximately 120,000, headed to neighboring Portugal, which uh, culturally, geographically, linguistically, was the most compatible and logical place of refuge for the Spanish emigrants. King John II of Portugal admitted the refugees, but with strict and harsh conditions. A limited number of families were charged a hefty sum to remain in Portugal as permanent residents. The majority paid a large sum for the right to remain in Portugal for up to eight months, during which time boats were to be provided to take them elsewhere. But a shortage of sailings made it impossible for those refugees to leave on time, and King John II seized the opportunity to proclaim all who would not convert to Christianity as his slaves. Hundreds of children of the refugees were forcibly torn from their parents and were sent to populate the newly discovered uninhabited African island of uh, San Tomé, where, where many of them were prey for wild animals or perished from malnutrition. In 1495, King John was succeeded by King Manuel I, who freed the Jewish refugees who had been declared slaves. Soon afterward, however, he entered into a politically expedient marriage, uh, that is a marriage contract, uh, with Princess Isabella, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. Uh, the bride-to-be added a stipulation to the marriage contract, no doubt at the instigation of her parents, Ferdinand and Isabella, and that stipulation was the expulsion of Portugal's Jews. And so on December 5, 1496, King Manuel I of Portugal issued an edict of expulsion allowing Jews until November of the next year, 1497, to leave the country. The king, however, apparently was faced with a dilemma. He needed to eliminate the Jews of Portugal that was part of the marriage contract, but doing so meant eliminating a sizable segment of his total population, which probably numbered about one million at that time, and also meant eliminating a significant portion of his economic middle class. Nor did he have a hundred years' worth of primarily middle-class conversos, as did Spain, to fill the vacuum of the expelled middle-class Jews. And so in the spring of 1497, the Jews of Portugal were ordered to assemble in Lisbon. When they arrived, they soon discovered that the expulsion had been transformed into a forced baptism, implemented by a cruel and brutal measure. Manuel had indeed eliminated his Jews while retaining his middle class. 
by forcibly transforming the Jews into Christians. At this point in time then, by May 1497, no openly professing Jews remained on Iberian soil. Now, with this truncated and broadly generalized summary of events in mind, we're just about ready to begin our detective work. But first, one brief observation. I find it intriguing that Jewish writers of the time often refer to the events of 1496 and 1497 as, uh, that is, the events in Portugal, as Gerush Portugal, the Portuguese expulsion. This despite the fact that the expulsion had little opportunity to take place. Uh, as we have seen, Manuel's scheme to retain his middle class while eliminating the open Jewish community necessitated the substitution of forced conversion for expulsion. Yet contemporary writers who are familiar with what happened describe these events with the term Gerush Portugal and not Shmad Portugal. For example, in the writings of Abraham Saba, a biblical commentator of the time, uh, in his commentary on Chumash, Surah Hamor, Saba refers to the manuscript of, the Torah, of his Torah commentary that he left in Portugal during the Gerush during the expulsion, and he tells the poignant story of how he buried all the, the manuscripts of his commentaries under a tree near Lisbon. Uh, then he managed to flee the country. Of course, he was never able to reclaim his manuscripts, so he had to rewrite whatever he could from memory in Morocco. Uh, Sabo also tells us in the introduction to his commentary on Kamesh Nebilot, entitled Eshkol HaKoser, in describing the events of 1496 and 1497, and then the wrath of God was kindled against his people, and all the Jews of Portugal were expelled by the decree of King Manuel. Again, Gerush is the operative word. Solomon Ibn Berger, in his Shevet Yehuda, historical chronicle of the time, also refers to the events as Gerush Portugal. Avram Sakuto, a rabbinic scholar, chronicler, and the court astronomer whose astronomical tables and maritime charts were utilized by Vasco da Gama and other explorers of the time. Uh, he also refers to uh, Gerush Portugal. And one final example, David Ben Yosef Ibn Yahya, in Akina, in a lament over these events, writes the following. And where is Portugal, fit for splendor, yet spoiled by expulsion, and become loathsome? I think that this utilization of the term expulsion reflects on the one hand the inevitable linking in the minds of these authors of the events that just occurred in Portugal with the experiences in Spain that were so recently and indelibly impressed upon their consciousness, especially since most of the writers that I just mentioned also suffered through the Spanish expulsion as well. Use of the term Gerush may also indicate a profound awareness, even prior to the forced exp- uh, conversion, of the real import of the decree the moment it was issued, namely that after several centuries of expulsions of Jews from various parts of Europe, this was the culminating expulsion. This decree meant the elimination of the Jews from the final West European refuge between them and the sea. Now this feeling, which already could have been sensed keenly in 1492, must have struck home with even greater finality in 1496. As Avram Sakuto stated, 
from France, Jewish exiles were able to come to Spain. But we, Spanish and Portuguese refugees, have our enemies to the one side and the ocean to the other. But whether one refers to the events of 1496 and 1497 as Gerush Portugal or Schmatz Portugal, it's clear that the whole period commencing with the Spanish expulsion of 1492 and culminating with the fourth conversion of 1497 was an essentially catastrophic time for the Jews in Portugal. What's less clear, however, are the specific details of the tragic events of this period, as well as the contemporary Jewish perception of these events and the Jewish response to these events. And what I'd like to do, to try to do, is to clarify one such detail pertaining to Jewish responses to what was happening. And in so doing, perhaps we will rethink a bit of the standard historical narrative of this whole period. The detail that I have in mind, what I'd like to explore with you, concerns the matter of Portuguese Jewish reaction to the mass influx of refugees from Spain. I mentioned before that the consensus of historians is that most of the Spanish exiles chose to enter Portugal and that they numbered roughly 120,000. So what was the reaction of the Portuguese Jewish community to this massive influx? Modern historians generally follow the 19th century German Jewish historian Heinrich Gretz in recording an actively negative reaction on the part of native Portuguese Jewry to the sudden and massive immigration from Spain. Gretz writes, quote, and it appears that this matter, i.e. immigration, was to the displeasure of the native Portuguese Jews, unquote. He then advances two reasons for this response, both of them based upon fear. First, the fear that the many poor immigrants would constitute a severe burden upon the native Jewish, Jewish population. And second, the fear that the sharp increase in the proportion of Jews to Christians would adversely affect the political position and security of the Portuguese Jewish community. Because of these apprehensions, continues Gret, the Portuguese Jews implored King John II not to permit the refugees to settle in Portugal. Gretz goes on to say that this attitude was strongly denounced by one leader of the community, Joseph Ben David Ibn Yahya, but to no avail. The distinguished 20th century Jewish historian, Zelo Baron of Columbia University, adds a further consideration prompting a negative response, that is, concern over native Christian animosity toward those refugees who were pestilence-ridden, who had contracted disease during this period, and he states that, quote, for this reason, as well as out of fear that Spanish immigration would undermine its own position, even native Portuguese Jewry revealed certain symptoms of xenophobia toward newcomers who outnumbered it and added one-eighth to the country's population. It allegedly was reprimanded by its leader, Joseph Ben David Ibn Yaqia. This unfavorable report is echoed consistently by other historians in the late 19th century and in the 20th century, among them, uh, Meyer Keiseling in his German History of the Jews in Portugal, um, Frederick David Makata in his Jews in Spain and Portugal and the Inquisition, Shlomo Rosanis in his History of the Jews in the Ottoman Empire, Divrei and Aesop at Tazgana, Cecil Roth in his History of the Moranos, Nachum Schlush in his Anusim before Tazgana. The verdict of history, the verdict of historians seem to be that Portuguese Jews reacted negatively toward the 
misfortune of their brethren from Spain. Now, when I read a report like that, here you have an illustrious Jewish community. This is the Portuguese Jewish community of the late 15th century, noted rabbis, distinguished leaders, Lisbon, renowned as the center of uh, of Chesed, we'll come back to that later. It's true they're facing a crisis of the first magnitude, but that the entire population becomes xenophobic except for one leader. So when I read a report like that, my attitude is, I'm from Missouri. <laughs> now, many of you know that I'm not actually from Missouri. I'm originally from Brooklyn. But even though Missouri and Brooklyn are geographically distant from one another, I think that attitudinally, the, there is a close affinity in that the denizens of both regions insist, show me, prove it to me, demonstrate to me that this is the case. And so I began to investigate a little detective work into this report. What actually happened? And I share with you my findings. The primary source for the report, and I think it's the sole source, the only source, is the 16th century <coughs> chronicle by the name of Shalshalat HaKabalah, The Chain of Tradition, which was written by Gedalia Ibn Yahya. Now, the book was published in Venice in 1587. Gedalia wrote it uh, several decades before that. Gedalia bin Yaka was the great-grandson of the protagonist in Gretz's account. That is, the, the Joseph and David bin Yaka, who reportedly rebuked the Portuguese Jewish community for their attitude. So this is his great-grandson, Gedalia ibn Yaka. Uh, now, these are not the only two ibn Yakas that we will meet tonight. There's actually quite a few. I apologize for not providing a scorecard or a playbill but I'll try to sort out the relationship. We're talking about the Mishpacham Yosef to Yisrael. This is one of the truly um, distinguished families in medieval Jewish Europe, uh, which uh, goes back to probably the time of the Rambam and continues into at least the 17th century. If you look at the first printed copy of the Kuzari, now the Sefer Kuzari was written by Rabbi Yudal Levi in the 12th century, but it was first printed in the year 1506, in Italy, in the town of Fano, and the person who brought it to press was Mayor Ben Yosef Ibn Yahya, who was a son of the Joseph Ibn Yahya of uh, Portugal in 1492. Now, Mayor, in the preface to this book, uh, uh, proudly displays his his illustrious pedigree. Uh, he says here that this book was brought to press by himself and by his brothers, uh, the children of Hashoah Hana'aleh HaEshel HaAdir, that distinguished and elevated nobleman, Hatsar Don Yosef Ibn Yafeh Ishlis Bon HaShobim HaChut Portugal, the son of the Yosef Ibn Yafeh that we mentioned from 1492 in Portugal, who himself was the son of Don David ibn Yahya, who was the son of Don Shlomo ibn Yahya, who was the son of Harav, Don David ibn Yahya, Arab in Castile, who was the son of Don Gedalia ben Yahya, who was the son of Don Shlomo ibn Yahya, who was the son of Don Yehuda ibn Yahya, who was the first to bear the family name Yahya after his father, whose name was Yahya ibn Yahish. Now, this is quite a uh, uh, lineage, and so we're talking about an important family indeed. We're, we've now met so far 
Joseph Ibn Yahya of 1492 in Portugal, and now his great-grandson, Sibelia Ibn Yahya. And his account is the source, the source, for this whole uh, matter of Portuguese-Jewish reaction to the Spanish exile. So I invite you to read it together with me. We'll read the account. This is source number Aleph, the first source on your, on your sheet. Uh, I wrote it for you. I admit that this is very low text, but it's, uh, I wrote it neatly. And uh, it's source Aleph. Gedalia bin Yahya shall shell it Does everybody have? If not, there are more uh, right next to Chaim. Okay. Yeah, anybody? Over there? Okay, everybody should have one of these. On the other side. Ah, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a bunch more in that. There's one more. Okay. Can I not go around? Okay, can you hear me on that side? Okay, thank you. Okay, then. Okay, one second. Okay. Okay, this is good. Okay, the first word. Kigali bin Yafi Shashat Takhapallah. Viza, ki achelik shepanula lechid al Portugal, hayu kemoshalosh meyot elif nefashot. And you should know that the segments of Spanish exiles that headed to Portugal numbered approximately 300,000 individuals. Now this is a radically, or dramatically, uh, high figure. I mentioned before that the consensus of historians is about 120,000 individuals, or perhaps 20,000 families, made their way to Portugal from Spain. Some put the figure at about 150,000, some put it at considerably less. Um, Abar Benel, in his commentary on Yeshaya, has the figure 300,000, but that's for the total number of exiles, and that's very high. So this is really a dramatically high figure for the number that went to Portugal. Asher, uh, let's continue though for now. And concerning this matter, all the Jews in Portugal took counsel together in order to provide some order to their arrival. For all the exiles were in a state of abject poverty. And after the many deliberations among themselves, the Portuguese Jews chose to plead with the king not to allow the Spanish exiles to enter, so that they would not fall into disfavor with the king. And this was due to the fact that the kingdom was simply too small to contain and absorb such a multitude of poverty-stricken individuals. The Hishmoa Hassar Don Yosef Ibn Yahya, and when the noble Yosef Ibn Yahya heard of this, Sa'atsa Kabitalalza, he protested vehemently, for how can we close the doors of salvation to poor people? The law of Buhayudimashmobikolo. And the Jews of Portugal did not want to listen to him. So that the Spanish exiles were forced to strike a, a deal with very harsh conditions in order for them to enter. And Gizal will then detail some of those conditions. And when, um, says Gizal, our 
great-grandfather saw that his colleagues would not accept his counsel, and he saw that the king was angry with or had evil intentions toward uh, the Jews, he went to uh, Italy with his sons, and as he thought, so it was that the situation deteriorated. Now, what we have here seems to be actually very solid grounding for the report of Gretz and the other historians. Uh, very clear here that there was an act of lobbying on the part of the Portuguese Jewish community against the entry of the Jews from Spain, and they were uh, rebuked or reprimanded by the Yosef um, Ibn Seems to be solid, but first of all, we have to consider the following uh, concerning this book, Shalshelet uh, HaKabalah. And it's also Gizalia ibn Yahya. Gizalia ibn Yahya was uh, known as a rabbinic scholar. He wrote uh, many books, most of which are lost to us today, uh, as befitting a, uh, a scholar who lived in 16th century Italy during the Renaissance. He was interested in many different disciplines, but he had a particular fascination for historical tales, historical stories, both in terms of Jewish history and non-Jewish world history. Uh, now, this uh, fascination led him to put together in his work a rather mixed bag, often undifferentiated there, of historical data on the one hand and legendary accounts, mythology, hagiography, unreliable family tradition, hearsay on the other. Um, you could say that he was not guided by uh, canons of modern academic historical research, uh, and it's true, although it's true that uh, in general medieval chronicles are not guided by those canons, they have their own uh, very different concerns, different goals, different methodologies, but Shashel Takabla stands out in this respect. So much so that uh, Mayor Waxman, in his history of Jewish literature, makes the following sweeping statement about the work. He says, Yet with all his knowledge, Gedalia was a very poor historian, as he absolutely lacked the faculty of discerning between fact and fable. His book is therefore a hopeless confusion of historical data and a multitude of legends, stories, and a recital of miracles and wonderful events. Indeed, uh, Joseph del Medigo of the 17th century in uh, Crete, uh, in referring to Shalshelet HaKabalah, the book of tradition, calls it Shalshelet Hashkarim, the chain of lies, uh, instead of the chain of tradition. And Baron himself, I mentioned him earlier, uh, in characterizing the book, calls it, quote, generally unreliable, unquote. Uh, now, it's true that in recent research, uh, especially Avram David and others in Israel, uh, there is more attention being paid to the value, the historical value, of Shoshot HaKabalah, especially in terms of the history of the Jews in 16th century Renaissance Italy, where he had the most familiarity with, with uh, uh, events on a personal level. But still, with regard to the earlier period, uh, things are shakier as a reliable uh, source. And I think the very fact that this work, Shalshal Kabbalah, is the prime source for the subsequent accounts that we uh, looked at, uh, Gretz and the others, uh, that would explain Baron's use of the term allegedly in the quote that I cited earlier. You remember Baron said that the Portuguese Jewish community allegedly was reprimanded by its leader, Joseph and David Ibn Yaka. He said that because the report was coming from Shalshelet HaKabalah, I'm sure. Um, and all of this might even prompt us to question the reliability of the report altogether. 
Uh, however, both Gretz and Baron Heiseling, other historians, cite a second source, which they feel corroborates Gedalia's account. So I'd like to look at that source with you, the supposedly corroboratory letter. It's a letter written by David ben Solomon ibn Yahya. Now this ibn Yahya was a nephew of the Joseph ibn Yahya of 1492 in Portugal. He himself was a rub in Lisbon. Uh, a noted personality who's a Bible commentator and a grammarian. A good number of his farm have come down to us. And uh, he lived through the events of 1492 in Portugal. Now, he wrote a letter. What happened was he fled to Italy. He managed to get eventually to Constantinople. While in Italy, he wrote a letter to Yeshaya Messini in which he seeks aid for his planned move to uh, Constantinople and in the course of the letter he includes a paragraph in which he describes what happened in Portugal in 1492. So let's look at that letter together. Well, before we look at it, let me say this. Uh, Gret notes that there's a sentence in this paragraph that ostensibly contradicts the later accounts of Kedalia ibn Yafian, but Gret tries to demonstrate that the two accounts not only do not necessarily conflict, but they in fact agree on the matter of resistance to Spanish immigration, and that really this letter serves as corroboration of Gedalia's account. So what I'd like to do is read the letter, the uh, paragraph from that letter, uh, with, uh, and just simply translate it with you. Then we'll read it the way Gretz reads it, then we'll read it the way I think it should be. Okay, here's, okay, here's the letter. Just get the... Uh, my copy of, of your sheet. There you go. Got it. And when the king of Spain expelled the Jews from all parts of his kingdom, many of the leaders, I assume the reference is the leading Jews, came to speak with the king of Portugal. She obtained to ourselves that he should gather them into his land. The Hitznu Imahem Tinaim, and they stipulated with them certain conditions, that one cannot even mention, much less uh, put down in writing, apparently because of their harshness. Because the king, King John II, was misanthropic by nature, uh, and certainly so toward the Jewish people. The entire community as one aided the refugees in every possible way. And the king was filled with anger toward them, apparently toward the Portuguese Jews who were helping the Spanish exile. <laughs> and confiscated the property of many of them, and some were punished bodily, and they died, the Chavle Oni, I assume he means Chavle with a Chet, as in the Pasuk in Eos, Chavle Oni, course of affliction. Okay, that's a simple translation of the passage. Now, it's clear from this account, first of all, that the Portuguese Jews helped indeed extensively helped rather than hindered the settlement of the immigrants. Uh, Gretz, however, notes that this record of subsequent aid to the refugees once they've arrived in Portugal does not necessarily contradict the report of initial Portuguese attempts to block their settlement. He points to the ambiguously worded description of this whole negotiation. 
many of the leading Jews came to speak with the king and they uh, stipulated conditions with them. He said, this is all very ambiguous and from this he inferred support for Shalshelet HaKabalah's version of the event. In, uh, as Gretz writes, quote, it appears from the words of Don David Ibn Yahya that he desires to quietly pass over an effort, i.e. Portuguese Jewish negotiations with the king, that was not viewed by everyone as proper. So he takes this to be corroboratory evidence for the later accounts of Gedalia, um, and uh, not at all, uh, in, uh, certainly not in contradiction to Gedalia. So I would argue that a careful reading of David Abinyakia's uh, letter, his description of the negotiations and of the lines that follow it, renders, renders uh, Gretz's inferences uh, somewhat moot. So let's look at the paragraphs again. That, how does Greg read it? Oh, okay. It's not so clear to me, but he says it. He says that um, since the words of the, uh, uh, the reports of the negotiations themselves, they came to speak with the king, it's so ambiguously worded, he feels that it's a conscious, deliberate attempt to quietly pass over something that was viewed as improper, that is Portuguese negotiations with the king, uh, that, that's Greg's argument. Uh, so I would argue as follows. If you read this again, and you read it carefully, the first difficulty you encounter is in ascertaining the identity of the leading Jews. Who are the Gedolim? Rabbim Mehag Gedolim. Now, Gretz assumes that they are Portuguese Jewish leaders. But I'm not so sure that they're Portuguese Jewish leaders. I think they might be Spanish Jewish leaders. And let's look again at this paragraph. Look at the first line of the paragraph. <laughs> when the king of Spain expelled the Jews from his territory, many of the leaders, well, what's the immediate, who's the immediate antecedent of Gedolim? The Spanish Jews who were expelled. So, indeed, we may be talking about the delegation of high-ranking Jews, supposedly 30 high-ranking Jews led by Rabbi Isaac Aboas, uh, that came to speak with the king of Portugal. The reference may be to that delegation, and Gretz himself uh, records that account. Um, or it could be, according to another account of the expulsion that was published by Alexander Marx in Jewish Quarterly Review in 1908, there was a delegation of Spanish Jews that was led by Don Vidal ben Benveniste that came to speak with King John II. So it could be um, that with the Rabin Mehagdolim are many of the Spanish Jews leading the exile who came to speak to the king. And if so, the next clause, the Hitnui Mahem Tanaim, and they stipulated with them, which is grammatically ambiguous any way you turn it, that could then refer to the conditions arranged between the king and the Spanish representatives, because we're not talking about Portuguese Jews at all uh, in the first part of this paragraph. And even if you want to say that the first statement, Rabbi Hakalim, really refers to Portuguese representatives, let's say it does, well, we still have no mention, as Mark was noting, I think, we still have no mention of any direct opposition on their part to the immigrants, Indeed, all they requested was she that he gathered them into the land. That's what they asked. The next clause, and they stipulated with them, they knew Imahem Tanaim, directly links the harshness of the conditions 
only to the independent initiative of the king, who was misanthropic by nature and certainly so toward the Jewish people, and there's no attempt to link the harsh conditions to any Jewish Portuguese effort to prevent the settlement. And finally, the very next fact recorded by David Ibn Yaki in this letter, that the entire community greatly aided the refugees, not only aided the refugees, but greatly aided the refugees to the point of provoking the king's wrath and bringing punishment upon themselves, that that would seem incongruous were we to interpret the immediately preceding sentences to mean that they were so fearful of the king's reaction that they actually lobbied against uh, settlements of the refugees. So to me, I, I think you, could question the, uh, you have to question the value of David Ibn Yaku's letter as corroboratory evidence for Gedalia's account. I think if anything, it's it seems to, uh, uh, to uh, disagree with Gedalia's account on certain points, but certainly it's not corroboration of Gedalia's later account. So we're left with the original uh, story that appears just in Shoshel Kabbalah and with the inherent uh, shakiness of that, of that source. And I'd like, to, I'd like to proceed to challenge the Shoshel Kabbalah's account further from another angle. Think about it. If indeed, Joseph and David Ibn Yahya, the great-grandfather of Gedalia Ibn Yahya, played such a dramatic role in 1492 and made such a dramatic exit from Portugal due to the events of the time, then wouldn't you think that someone else in the Ibn Yahya family, he has a family, such a proud family, we went through their lineage already, the Yichas, uh, such a prolific literary output, wouldn't somebody else uh, talk about the dramatic uh, uh, exit of, of the grandfather, great-grandfather, whichever uh, generation, uh, Joseph Ibn Yahya? And uh, so I looked, and sure enough, sure enough, there's one other account, an earlier account, of how it came, how it came about that Joseph and David Ibn Yahya left Portugal around 1492. And that account appears in a safer uh, called Torah Or that was published in Bologna in 1538. And it was written by none other than Gedalia's father, uh, the grandson of Joseph Ben David Ibn Yahya of 1492 in Portugal, and the namesake of Joseph Ben Yahya. He, he has the same name to confuse everybody more. His name is Joseph Ben David Ibn Yahya. He's the grandson of the Joseph of 1492, and he's the father of Gedalia, and he's the author of Torah Or. So in, you, the introduc- in the introduction to the Sefer Torah Or, which you have at source number Gimel on the other side of, your, of the sheet, uh, let me give you the context. This is a poetic, a very flowery introduction. What happened here, see, Joseph was born just after his parents fled from Portugal, maybe a couple of years later. And Joseph um, was living in Italy, in north-central Italy, and at a certain point he came under severe pressure to convert during a bit of a persecution at that time. And he writes that what enabled him to withstand the pressure of conversion at that time was the example of his grandfather. And what he writes in this introduction uh, are the words that he said to himself, or as he puts it, his, his neshama said to him, uh, when he was going through this crisis, when he was going through this trial. And now we could read the paragraph uh, together, knowing that. It says, 
Um, this is Joseph ben David ibn Yahya, uh, father of Gedan. Habet el Zignacha Hasar Don Yosef ibn Yahya. He said to himself during this trial, Look to your grandfather, the noble Yosef ben David ibn Yahya, Asher Kidesh Hashem Barabim, who publicly sanctified the name of God. What were the circumstances? He now elaborates. He kasher his kim amelach don Juan in Portugal because when King John of Portugal uh, agreed or decided or thought about when he thought about trying to convert uh, Jews and remember he already was headed in that uh, direction with regard to many of the Spanish exiles who, uh, who couldn't pay the required uh, after, after being in, uh, Spain for, uh, in Portugal for eight months uh, so apparently he had this plan to convert more of uh, Portuguese Jewry. Chashavli both told all He thought in his heart evil, saying, If I could just draw into my net some of the leaders of the Jews, in particular, in particular, the elderly and venerable Yosef ibn Yahya, if I could draw him in, when the rest of the Jews would see that he converted, a mighty leader, 70 years old, then the rest of the people would follow, emulate his example, and they would be accepted as good Christians. So he sent one of his officials, one of his noblemen, El Hayashish Lemar to the elderly Yosef Ibn Yahya saying to him, Amelach Sivalacha Reid Vasekana. The king has commanded that you do his will, the Hamir Dan, to convert. Viliot Evidle Lahano and to be a servant to his God. The Amlichal Ray Pragansa Umikne Kinino. And in return he will give you a position of authority over the cities of Braganza, that's the uh, northeastern district of Portugal. And over Mcnechin, you know, that's the phrase they just had in the way, say, the, um, his wealth. Uh, and if you don't do so, you will be killed. And when the elderly, venerable Yosef Ibn Yaka heard this, So he cried and prayed to God. And he took with him his three sons, your father David, remember he's talking to himself. So his own father David and his two uncles, Meir Shlomo. And he fled from the king. And the king pursued him by Yabashal, by Yom, by Seal Gumim, in dry land, through sea, through the corals. And he couldn't catch him because a miracle uh, was performed and the ship that Yosef Ibn Yaqib was on uh, with the aid of the strong eastern wind got to Castile. And King John had to go back shamefaced and without his prisoner. Uh, and then Yosef ben Zavid goes on to describe how his grandfather, of course, did not stay in Castile. He couldn't have any openly professing Jews there, but he managed to flee to Italy uh, at that point. So, what do we have here? Uh, what we have, I think, are some, uh, some key discrepancies here between the account 
of uh, Yosef ibn Yahya's departure from Portugal in Gedalia's Shoshot HaKabalah and the account of his departure in his father's uh, Torah Or. In, in Gedalia's account, um, Joseph left uh, Portugal after the Portuguese Jewish community failed to heed his protestations concerning their negative attitude towards the Spanish exile. According to um, Gedalia's father, in Torah Or, Joseph departed uh, Spain, uh, Portugal rather, because of the king's desire that he convert as an example to others. There's no mention in Torah Or about the whole matter of Portuguese reaction to Spanish immigration, which was a key factor in Gedalia's account of the story. It doesn't even get mentioned in Torah Or. Furthermore, unlike Gedalia's version, where Joseph voluntarily left Portugal, in Torah Or, Joseph is secretly pleased for his life and he's pursued by the king. So, given such discrepancies, along with the already uh, stated unenviable reputation of Shoshel Takabalah in terms of reliability as a, as for historical data, uh, it's tempting to simply reject Gedalia's report and thereby uphold the honor of the Portuguese Jewish community. One could even submit additional, albeit somewhat circumstantial evidence, uh, to further challenge the plausibility of Gedalia's account. The fact, for example, that no other contemporary writer dealing with the same event, not Abraham Arduziel, not Eliyahu Kapsali, not Yosef HaKohen, not Shlomo Ibn Verga, not Shmuel Ushka, none of the contemporary Hebrew chroniclers, uh, many of whom went through these events, none of them cite any such account about Portuguese uh, lobbying of the king. Um, that's significant in itself, but it may be particularly revealing with regard to Solomon Ibn Verga in his Shevet Yehuda, because in that chronicle he does not hesitate to recount some of the less worthy acts of his people. He's ready to place the blame on the Jews themselves for their misfortunes wherever he thinks uh, the blame lies. In particular, he uh, emphasizes what he feels are ostentatious displays of wealth that arouse the enmity of non-Jewish neighbors and lead to misfortune. He goes on and on about that. And uh, he, in fact, also records a very similar tale about um, concerning the reception of Portuguese refugees by the Jewish community of Rome. Also, a similar tale of a negative uh, reception lobbying against their, their entry. Now, that tale needs its own investigation because I, I, I don't have any corroboration uh, uh, for that. And you can make, if you're into uh, esotericism, maybe you can make a case that uh, that was that reference to uh, Portuguese refugees coming to Rome was really an esoteric allusion to a Spanish exile coming into Portugal, but I don't think that's even Burgess' uh, style. Uh, I think he'd be very frank about it. But uh, in any case, he has someone who went through 1492 and 1496 himself in Spain and in Portugal and says not a word about uh, the uh, Portuguese Jewish community uh, having a negative reaction to the Spanish exile. More evidence. Uh, one could point to the, uh, I mentioned this, I alluded to this earlier. One could point to the exemplary philanthropic activity and reputation of the Portuguese Jewish community. Uh, David Ben Solomon Ibn Yahya's assertion in his letter that the entire community as one aided the refugees in every possible way may be supplemented by many other reports. For example, Eliyahu Kapsali in his chronicle, Seder Eliyahu Zutta, 
reports that approximately 10,000 Spanish immigrants who were declared slaves immediately by King John II because they didn't pay the required entrance tax were redeemed by Portuguese jurors. Uh, 20 years earlier, in 1472, Abarbanel, who was then a high-ranking Jew in Portugal, wrote a letter to Yechiel of Pisa in which he describes the actions of the Portuguese community in redeeming 250 Jews of North Africa who were taken prisoner by the Portuguese and distributed as slaves. And under the leadership of Abarbanel, many thousands of gold doubloons were raised in order to redeem uh, these captives. Now, it's true that Pidyon Shluyim was always the number one priority in uh, Jewish philanthropy in uh, medieval Europe. Uh, but uh, but uh, Portugal excelled. Uh, the philanthropic character of the Lisbon Jews in particular is extolled by Yosef Yavis, who was the commentator of this period and a theologian, an anti-philosophic theologian for a different lecture, uh, in, in Or HaChayim. In his book Or HaChayim he said, in this generation too, wise and understanding men have risen in the kingdoms of Spain and the kingdom of Portugal, and particularly in the great city, a mother city in Israel, Irba Envy Israel, the city called Lisbon. There resided great and pious people, holding firm to Torah and the commandments, and especially to the commandments of charity, acting charitably literally at all times. For there is no hour in the day at which the collectives of charity do not go round in the Jewish section. And I should point out that that last sentence refers to the Gathahed Saka in Lisbon, not to Mishalachim in Phoenix. <laughs> uh, further uh, references to the particularly charitable nature of the Portuguese community may be gleaned from isolated comments I'll just mention too. There's a line in David ben Yosef ibn Yahya. Now David ben Yosef ibn Yahya uh, we actually mentioned him early on. He was the one who wrote that kina, that lament over the events, but I didn't give you his, his uh, yichus at the time. He's a son of the Joseph Ibn Yahya of, the, uh, of 1492 and the grandfather of Hidalia Ibn Yahya. Okay? I think that's right. And this is why I don't give Shior in Yavanka. <laughs> I think it's true. Now, David Ben Yosef Ibn Yahya in his kina, Algerish Portugal, says the following, and where, uh, now it's gone, where are, is, is the charity that was distributed daily in Portugal? Without a peep, without a process, everyone's donating uh, willingly. Also a remark, interesting remark, a curious remark, in um, Rabbi David Messerleon's Kavod HaChamim. Kavod HaChamim was a book written in the early 16th century in the Ottoman Empire in the midst of a fierce uh, uh, the, uh, quarrel going on among the refugees. There were, there were uh, refugees from the different communities of Spain there. There were refugees from the different communities of Portugal. There were the native Jews from the Ottoman Empire. And there were fierce quarrels about Minagli. And so, uh, really fierce. And uh, in Tzod Chachamim is a book in which he recounts his attempts as a rabbi to deal uh, with these uh, problems and his Tzitzke Halakha and, uh, and what had to be done and he mentions in the course of his book, as is my want to like and respect the Portuguese from among all these Iberian immigrants, for uh, despite the fact they're quick to anger, 
There's still people who listen to the words of the Chachamim, Va'amitiim, they have integrity, they're honest, Unadizim, and they are charitable, and they are generous. Um, this is a constant theme when he gets the Portuguese jury, they're charitable, uh, charitable nature. And finally, additional evidence uh, concerning our issue could be collated via other avenues of approach to the question. I'll just mention uh, one more uh, approach. It seems to me, it seems that there's an absence of any allusion to the whole matter of negative Portuguese uh, response to the Spanish exile in a source where one really would accept it. And that is at the autosafe. In Portugal, the Inquisition was introduced officially in 1536. It was only a few years later that the first autosafe um, began, literally acts of faith, that of course are the, the major public ceremonies in which um, people accused, converted Jews accused of Judaizing or secretly observing Jewish rituals would be humiliated, sentences would be pronounced on them, sometimes punishments uh, were given there, sometimes punishments, uh, especially if they're more severe, were given at a different location. Uh, but part of the scene of the spectacle of the auto de fe was a sermon given by clerics, fiery sermons, which always recounted the history of these new Christians in Portugal. And if you look at the sermons that we have, you will see that the question of how Jews were able to gain admission to Portugal is a topic that's treated often by these preachers. But no record of this episode in which uh, uh, there is uh, Portuguese Jews lobbying against their Spanish brethren, that's uh, an episode which conceivably could have been used to reflect badly on Jewish character. The preachers would have seized on that. Yet there's no such record of them mentioning this. Uh, and that, I think, tells us something as well. And so submission of evidence in the case against Gedalia Benyakin's report, uh, I guess, is now complete. Uh, should we convict Gedalia of fabricating this story? Uh, no, I can't, uh, I can't uh, say that Gedalia ever deliberately fabricated anything. In fact, it's hard to find a real motive for the crime in this particular case. Certainly a natural desire to magnify the, um, the virtuous deeds of his great-grandfather Joseph Ben David Ibn might have led him to embellish or exaggerate details of the story that he had heard. But as far as the essential circumstances of the story, for what possible purpose would a descendant of a great Portuguese Jewish family have concocted an incriminating tale about his Portuguese ancestors? The question in my mind. Uh, is the story plausible? Well, it is human nature to grant self-interest and self-preservation priority over love of one's brother in case of conflict. There certainly was a potential conflict here. Uh, also, historically, down to our own day, uh, you can find examples of mixed or predominantly negative response to immigrations of persecuted fellow Jews. Uh, you don't have to look at the uh, foreign history to find that. Uh, and finally, the fact that aid is granted to the immigrants once they've arrived is also a characteristic of Jewish communities and not necessarily a contradiction to an initially negative response. Is it possible that this account in Yedalia in Shalshel to Kabbalah is no more than an unreliable family tradition? 
uh, a tale, an oral tale that was embellished over the many decades before it got written down. Uh, I think that is, uh, that is certainly a possibility. It might be a distinct possibility. Uh, there was a rabbi in the mid-19th century, rabbi and scholar by the name of el Karmoli. Now he himself was uh, accused by critics uh, of uh, carelessness and unreliability. But he said concerning Gedalia Ibn Yaqib's reports of family stories, family traditions in Shalshel to Kabbalah with a play on the Pasuk in Zot Abraha. He says, Asher Adiv Molo Yada Uveit Avotavlo Hikir V'Katav Alehem Tavarim Asher He says, he really knew nothing about his family history. It was ungrounded, unsubstantiated. And there are stories that got embellished over the time. Uh, now, uh, certainly there's two sides to the, uh, uh, to the story in terms of how you view the, um, the reliability or unreliability. I think, though, that uh, there's a distinct possibility that we are dealing with a uh, tale that might have uh, been embellished over the centuries, certainly uh, a strong possibility. I, I definitely think that uh, a large question mark should be hung over the whole matter of Portuguese Jewish lobbying against uh, uh, the entrance of their Spanish uh, Jewish uh, brethren. After all, we have what amounts to one source. It's a, a late source, almost a century after the event, from a fairly unreliable uh, uh, a book in terms of its historical uh, reliability. Uh, the supposedly corroborating evidence we dismissed is not corroborating. You have an earlier account closer to the event, Gedalia's father, which uh, an account of how Joseph Ibn Yafia left Portugal, which seems to uh, uh, contradict the report of Gedalia in some key respects. And then you have a small mountain of maybe a circumstantial, but evidence uh, which would seem to undercut the whole scenario depicted by Gedalia uh, in his account. And so, uh, Barring future uh, disclosures of new evidence, uh, I would humbly and respectfully suggest that the whole matter of uh, the Portuguese negative, actively negative reaction to uh, the Spanish exile in 1492 uh, be uh, expunged from the historical text and relegated to a forlorn footnote accompanied by the requisite caveats, reservations, and qualifications. Uh, and if so, if this, uh, then what we have accomplished to this point is to rethink a part of the standard historical narrative of the events of 1492 to 1497 and in the process perhaps we have upheld the honor and integrity of an illustrious uh, Jewish community. Now, with this in mind, I invite you to come with me very briefly back to the future that is to fast forward 450 years from 1492 to 1942. Uh, I undertake this time travel with some trepidation. Uh, my own research, of course, is primarily directed toward medieval Jewish history. I claim no expertise in the history of the 20th century, uh, despite the fact that I lived most of my life in it. <laughs> uh, nor do I claim expertise in the history of the Holocaust despite the fact that my family, like the families of so many here, was tragically affected by the Shoah. But I have read Dr. David Kranzler's scholarly work. I also had the privilege, as I mentioned, of 
publishing an article by him entitled Orthodox Rabbis uh, Confront the War Refugee Board in a volume that I edited. And it seems to me that when it comes to one of his primary areas, areas of research, that is Orthodox Jewish rescue efforts during the Holocaust, what David Kranzberg did was to rethink a parsha of Jewish history, to use meticulous archival research to challenge the accepted wisdom, the accepted historical judgment of many first-rate scholars in the field who criticized or ignored the role of Orthodox Jewish rescue efforts. In Dr. Kranzler's words, he tried to demonstrate that, quote, far from being indifferent to the fate of their brethren in Europe, American Orthodox Jews were the segment of American Jews most involved in rescue, unquote. In the article by Dr. Transfer that I cited uh, a few moments ago, Orthodox, uh, uh, I don't know, Orthodox rabbis confront the war refugee board. He notes that he asked Dr. Joseph Schwartz of the Joint Distribution Committee why the American government finally in December of 1943 finally permitted relief organizations to send money legally into enemy-occupied territories in Europe and Shanghai. Dr. Schwartz replied, quote, there was a rabbi with a long white beard who, when he cried, even the State Department listened. Unquote. The references to Rabbi Abraham Kalmanowitz of the Aguda. David Kranzler felt the rabbi's tears and traced their flow as they poured into fast-moving streams of rescue efforts. Dr. Kranzler pursued historical truth, generously lavishing praise and akarata tov when he felt it was warranted, as, for example, in the case of Swiss press and church campaigns in 1944 that he felt helped to halt the deportations to Auschwitz and laying blame where warranted, for example, at the door of Roswell McClelland, the American representative of the War Refugee Board in Switzerland, who, he demonstrated, obstructed important rescue efforts. Professor Kranzler boldly resourced a chapter of Jewish history and in the process upheld the honor of a segment of the Jewish community. My humble tentative uh, attempt at accomplishing something along these lines with regard to an episode of Jewish history in 1492, to 1492 uh, was meant as a tribute to Dr. Kranz's work regarding 1942 and the years immediately prior to that and subsequent to that. To conclude with two rabbinic texts, both concerning David Kranzler's namesake, and now that David David Amelis. First, the Gemara Mstachim Zafkut Yitzhet Amitzet. Gemara says, Vatira Kadosh Brachu Vatot Suzalat Sadikim. In the future, a Kadosh Brachu will prepare a feast for the righteous. Now, when this feast is to occur, and the precise character of this Suza, whether it is meant literally or allegorically, figuratively, here I refer you to a Rambam, and you see we got the Rambam in just under the wire. Uh, this is Hilchot Tshuva Parapet Halachadalit, and if you look at the writers there, Alatar, on the issue of the meaning of this Suda. But for now, let's just continue the Gemara. Lachasha After everybody eats and drinks at this great feast, the coast of Fabeshing is offered to Avram Avinu, and he will say, Eini Mevarech. I decline. Uh, I cannot take this honor because I am unfit for the honor uh, Yishmo issued from me. Uh, Yitzchak will be offered the coast to bench, and he will decline as well because Esau is issued from him. Yaakov, the Moshrafeno, and Yoshua all offer various reasons why they do not feel they are fit to accept this, this tremendous honor. 
And then David, David Amelech, will be offered the coast. And David will reply, Ani Abareth, I'll bench. Valina Abareth, and appropriate and proper that I bench. Because it's my safer to heaven that says, Coast Yeshuot Etzah, Uvashem Hashem Ekron. I will lift up the cup of salvation and invoke the name of Hashem. But here is the David who boldly steps ahead where others fear to tread. Like Dr. David Kranzler boldly did in his pioneering scholarly work for decades, searching for a net for historical truth. And then there is the Medrash. In Medrash Tehillim on Tehillim Kuf Yudchet. On the Sukkim Tibchuli Shari Tzedek of Avamotekaz Zehashar Lashem Tadikim Yavo Vo. Says the Medrash. Lo'olam haba, in the world to come, yamrula la'adam, the person will be asked, ma'ayamalastafa, what was your occupation on earth? If the person answers, ma'achil re'evim ha'yiti, I was one who fed the hungry, him yamrula, they will respond, zehashar l'ashem. This is the gate of the Lord. Ma'achil re'evim hikanetzo, someone who fed the hungry can enter it. If the person answers, ma'ashket sumeim ha'yiti, I was one who quenched the thirst of the thirsty, uh, same thing, they will respond, Zehashal Hashem, here's the gate of Hashem, Mashkech Tumayim is welcome to come in. So same thing with Maltisha Rumim, and Mikadel Yitomim, and Kol Oseif Zakah, and all of the Gomlei Chasadim. And then Zavid, says the Medrash. When Zavid is there, what was your Masacha? He will say, Ani Asit Kulam. I did all of those things. Yiftachuli Yet Kulam. Open all the Shari Tzedek for me. As the Pasuk says in his Tehillim, Tithuli Shari Tzedek Avavam. Open all the gates of righteousness. I will enter them. O I will thank Hashem. A distinguished uh, faculty colleague of mine, Dr. Judas Fleiss, has told me numerous stories about uh, David and Judy Kranzler's Chesed. A home, as I mentioned earlier, a home open to all for extraordinary hasnasad rachim, for assistance, guidance, and counsel to others whenever required, chesed with a passion, complementing emet with a passion. And finally, you may have noticed that a common thread ties together the two rabbinic texts concerning Zavid HaMelech. We see here, and there are other examples as well, how Chazal has painted a spiritual picture, a spiritual portrait of David that seems to draw on all dimensions of his character and activity. The boldness, passion, and decisive actions of the warrior and the king, the creative spirituality of the Na'im Zemirat Yisrael, the sweet finger of Israel, it all comes together in the depiction of David, the spiritual warrior, in Sachem and in Midrash Tehillim, as he boldly and passionately seeks to attain an ever greater level of closeness to a Kaddish Over many years, I've had the good of getting to know a good many members of the immediate and extended Transfer family. And the common thread, the common denominator of this remarkable family is the active, never passive, the passionate and creative quest for greater spirituality via rabbinic service and rabbinic learning, via academic scholarship in history, sociology, and philosophy, via art, literature, music, and song, via educational leadership, communal involvement, and the healing arts, this family exerts a profound influence on Jews, Judaism, and the pages of Jewish history. 
Dr. David Kranzler's passion and scholarship play a pivotal role in this family legacy. Yehizah Baruch.